0: So, so many dreams that we have in life involve getting a certain title or being called something. I think back when I was in elementary school and all I wanted out of life was to someday be called an NFL player. So why am I here this Sunday instead of playing in the Super Bowl? Well, I quickly discovered that to be called an NFL player, to have that title, you needed to be good at football. I was not, so that wasn't going to work out. I went to a Christian college, and one of the big phrases that you hear there is, uh, ring by spring, that it's a place where marriages happen often and quickly, sometimes too quickly. But I'm there for undergrad, and spring comes, and then the next spring, and then the next spring, and then the next spring. And then I go to seminary, and springs keep passing. I go to seminary again, and springs are passing. And, and all the while, it's, when do I get to be called someone's husband? Emily and I got married um, by a spring, uh, coincidentally. And uh, finally, was I able to be called someone's husband? But I, I found something out. And and. As Justin said, we were at this marriage conference this past weekend. Calvary sent a lot of folks down there. And I realized that as a husband, someone who's called that, there's some things that I'm supposed to do. Uh, I I heard that Emily has needs and wants. I had no idea. Did Did you know that that's the thing? So to be called someone's husband means that there's things that I'm supposed to do. I mentioned going to uh, this, this schooling uh, with the hopes of one day being called a pastor. I was at a church in California where I had that title, got called out here to Calvary just over a year ago. And there's some things that I have to do if I want to keep being called pastor. What, Despite what you might think, I don't just sit around all day here. I stand around, it's better for your posture. <laughs> When we are called something, when we have a title, there are things that we have to do. And I bring all this up because we're starting a new series this morning, a series in the book of James that will carry us up to the start of summer. And James is written to people who would call themselves Christians. That is their title. But what is it that they're actually supposed to do? What is it that Christians do? To not just have that in name or in title only, but what do Christians do? And as you walk through the book of James, you see uh, all kinds of instructions as to what it is that these people are supposed to do. What do we do when there's so much travesty in this world? What do we do when we are faced with injustice? How do we respond to people who are different than us? How do we respond to people in general? How do we wait patiently until Jesus comes and makes all things new? How should I act when every part of me just wants to build myself up to to feed into my selfishness? And James, as we will see as we go through the series, addresses these and, and so many more things to these people who would call themselves Christians. What then are they supposed to do? Excited for this series. Uh, one a little bit of instruction about how we will be doing this series is we're doing a, uh, what we call a market up. So uh, this is a time that we normally pass out to the scripture journals, and you might have noticed that as you walked in, you didn't receive these. These are little booklets that have the text of scripture and some room on there to circle things, to underline things, to make connections, to see what it is that the words are saying. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've come across this or anything, but... Uh, shipping has been getting more and more delayed, uh, and so the scripture journals are supposed to be here tomorrow, which is of no help to us today. So we'll, we'll still be marking it up, uh, looking at what these words are saying then and how uh, they impact our lives now. And the reason why we do a series like this is we take the, the Bible very seriously. We want to go passage by passage, idea by idea, not skipping over the parts that are difficult or not ignoring the things that are inconvenient for us, but we want to see what is it that God said then and how that influences how we live now. And with that, we don't just think that the ideas of the Bible are inspired or the Word of God. We think the very words themselves are important. So that's why we want to pause. We want to look at what is being said here. How are these ideas connected to actually mark up the text of Scripture so we can get a better understanding of what it is that God's saying. And finally, we do a mark it up because we think that the Bible's words still have power today to shape lives, to help us not just be Christians in name and title only, but to live as we are called to live. So with all that kind of set up, Grab a pen, you can mark up your Bible if you're comfortable with that. I'm going to hold off until I get the scripture journal myself, but, but we'll, we'll still do it as a mark it up, just not quite as, as formal as, as we would in a mark it up. So grab a pen, grab your Bible, and let's jump into it. James chapter 1, verse 1. I can think of no better place to start than that. So let's get in the text. James chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, James. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Look, I said we'd get into the text. I didn't say how far we'd get into the text, okay? But this first word gives us an important detail. It gives us an important bit of backstory to this letter. It is written by James. That's great. Now, who's James? So, as you read through the New Testament, we'll come across by my count six or so men named James. And what we can tell from from Evidence at the time and what the church has held historically is that this is James, the half brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph. And this James pops up quite a bit throughout the New Testament. I think of John chapter 7, where Jesus is mocked by his brothers. James would have been included in that. And a passage tells us quite clearly that they did not believe him, they did not believe Jesus. I think of Mark chapter 3, where where Jesus is speaking, and his family, which James would have been included in, came up to him to uh, stop him, to remove him from there. And, And this is a direct quote, because they thought he was out of his mind. And Jesus looks at the crowd, and he says something that would have been so offensive at the time. He says, those who do the will of God are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. And then we see a tremendous transformation in the life of James. He goes from disbelief to to being called not even a true brother of him, despite being a physical brother of him, to believing, to following after Jesus, to being the key leader of the church in Jerusalem. If you can think of any more significant church at the time, I'm not sure that we could. Jerusalem was such an important church, and James is leading there. He goes from disbelief to following him so closely. He, he writes things in this letter that sound so similar to what we hear from Jesus. In James chapter 1, verse 22, he, he encourages us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Isn't that just like what Jesus said? Those who do the will of God are my mothers and my sisters and my brothers. He becomes truly like a brother of Jesus going from disbelief to calling himself, look at what he calls himself in, in James chapter 1, verse 1. He says, a servant. A servant of whom? Well, he's a servant of God, as, as any good Jewish boy would have been, but he is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. The very Jesus that he denied, that he didn't believe in, he is now calling himself a servant of him. He doesn't say, James, brother of Jesus, so you better listen to what I have to say. He doesn't say, James, oh, you got three years with him? Well, I had a childhood with him. Who do you think knows him better? He doesn't say, James, key leader of the church in Jerusalem. He doesn't do anything to draw attention to his status or his place in this family because his spiritual connection to Jesus is so much more important than his physical connection to Jesus. This title, that of servant, is the most significant follower, servant of Jesus. That is who he is. That is who writes this letter. Now, who is it written to? Well, we have that as well in our passage to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So, when we hear this word dispersion, we could probably put together a little bit about what that means. So people who are dispersed, spread out. But this is a very weighted word that when a certain group would hear the word dispersion, they would have a very clear understanding of what it means. So if I said the phrase Super Bowl, uh, we all think about the game that's being played today, not the, the best object to eat cereal out of. It has a weighted understanding to it that's built in. When we say dispersion to the, Greek, or to the Jewish audience, that would mean Jewish people and then eventually Jewish Christians who are spread out in a non-Jewish area. So Jewish Christians spread out in a non-Jewish area. So to recap what we hear about the background, James, half-brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, is writing to Jewish Christians spread throughout the world. These are people who know the gospel. These are people who are following after Jesus. These are people who would call themselves by the title of servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And James is writing to them to show them how do they live. With that title being called that, how are they to respond? What is it that Christians do? Then in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we have that first piece. What is it that Christians do? Well, here is the first bit of instruction that James gives. Let me read for us this passage. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's go back to that first word, count. Another word, or other translations use this as consider. Uh, We can understand this as think of it as all joy, When you face these kinds of trials, have that be your mindset. Let that be what you are thinking about, that it is joy. I talked about how James is is writing to help us be doers of the word, not just hearers of it, uh, of showing what is it that Christians are supposed to do once they're called that. And as a result, there are more imperatives, more commands in the book of James per word than any other book in the New Testament lots of commands throughout it. And here we have the first one. Count it all joy. James is commanding us to think this way when we come to difficulty. Well, how can we do that? We'll keep coming back to this because we're tracing the argument throughout, but how do we think about this? It's that we see something being produced. We see a result that is greater than these difficulties. It's like, this. So consider it all joy when you go to an elementary musical recital. Uh, Consider it all joy when your child is rehearsing the recorder and doing the same three bars out of key over and over and over and over. Now, why would we consider that joy? Because it's exceptional music? Oh gosh, no, not at all but it's a way of expression that your child may never have experienced before. It's possibly awakening a new love. Your your child is producing something, and and even if it doesn't look beautiful to others, this is your child who has done that, and, and that's something wonderful. So as you see this thing being produced, it is well worth the trickle of blood that's coming out of your ear. It's the same thing here. Consider it all joy because something is being worked, something is being done that is of greater value and greater significance than the trials and pains and difficulty themselves. We have this mindset, not thinking that these things are great around us, but knowing that there is something else that is happening, knowing that there is something that is being produced. We don't think about them this way because we love these trials, but we love the result that is happening. Two commentators that that I've really appreciated their work in, in this book of James says it this way. He says, James is not commanding how one should feel. So when we're in the difficulty, it's not saying pretend like it's all fine. It's not saying that, but it's how we should think about one's circumstances. When we are in difficulty, it is of vital importance how we think and consider and count these things that we are going through. They are real pains. They are real hardships. They are called trials, but what we think about them makes all the difference. James says we are to count them. We are to think about them as all joy. If we had those scripture journals, this would be a great phrase to, to circle because it's of tremendous importance. Count it as all joy. Now, it doesn't say to count it everything as joy. It doesn't say to only count it as joy, as if when pain comes and we wince at it, oops, sorry, now you're a sinner. That's not it at all. But it's the quality of the joy, uh, of the joy that is speaking of. It's all joy, pure joy, utter joy joy. When we go through these times, we are to consider it as, as pure and utter joy. We acknowledge the hurts we, we experience the emotions that we talked about all through our Beyond Blue series. We yell, we get anxious, we, we cry, we, we say these are real pains, but we move our mind, and not always perfectly, but we move our mind in these times to acknowledge that God is working in this, to realize that He is here. He's not absent or removed, but He is in this, and that is producing in us joy that as we see this greater work that's going on that outlasts any of our shifting circumstances around us, that that is able to fill us with joy as we think about those things. When we go through these difficulties, we count them as all joy then it says, my brothers, and I always like throwing this reminder out there, brothers is this inclusive noun to mean all of those who are Christians. So uh, count it as all joy, my brothers and sisters is another way that we could read that. When. Now, here's a question for you. Is when the same thing as if? Do those words mean the same thing? No, when does not mean if. So it doesn't say if you experience these trials. No, no, no. When. Trials are going to come. Pain, hardship, difficulty, suffering, that will come to those who don't follow Jesus and those who do follow Jesus. Doesn't mean that we force ourselves into a situation that's painful for us. We don't seek these times out. But it also doesn't say that we're shielded from these times either. But as we are in them, we are promised that God is with us as well there, that he is doing something. The last bit that we have is when we meet trials of various kinds. All kinds of trials we will experience in this. We think of uh, James' audience. We're told that they are in the dispersion, so they're spread out to all of these non-Jewish areas. Some of this would have been in search of work because where they were before, there, there just wasn't any economic prospects for them. Sometimes this means leaving your home either by force as a refugee or, or just uh, something was going on that you couldn't be around anymore. So you're leaving possessions, everything that you own and going to this new place. And, and, and that's a difficult situation to get a start there. Taxation was rampant. It was excruciatingly high at this time. So people uh, uh, that, that James was writing to were probably tremendously, tremendously poor for the most part. They're facing spiritual persecution. There's all sorts of things that they were going through, and yet various trials doesn't just include those things. It would include the time when a parent seems to be doing so much better health-wise, and then something happens, and they take a turn for the worse. That we felt secure financially, and then something happens, and now that's all gone now. That a small disagreement ended up blowing up an entire friendship. That cruel monthly reminder that infertility will go on again. Health, relationship, financial, spiritual, all sorts of difficulty is wrapped up in this phrase, various kinds. And it's in these that we're to count them as pure joy. Well, why? Why would we do that? Why would we consider all of these difficulties in life as joy? Well, it's what we've been talking about, that there is something going on. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, that these times of trial are a time of testing. This word has to it this idea of refining, so uh, superheating an object so that any impurities or imperfections are removed and all that's left is, is the original object, which is more valuable than it was before because all those other things are stripped away from it. These trials are a time of testing for the Christian because it removes things that ought not to be there. So self-reliance Uh, views about God that aren't actually true of him, Uh, things that we grasp in this world that will never satisfy or give us true hope. These things in the midst of trials are removed. This time is a testing time, that of purifying our faith and what is left behind is something greater than it was before. This isn't testing like God looking down to see, is there any faith in this person? Isn't God prodding us with a stick to see what we'll do? But it is a time of growing the faith that is already there. I have some things within Christianese, so how Christians tend to talk, the special language that, that seems to, to be around Christians. Uh, there's some parts of Christianese that, that I uh, don't think are the most helpful So things that we might say uh, that are trying to give comfort and care, but they kind of ring a bit hollow or, or a little bit like a cliche. And then there's other parts of Christianese that I actively despise, that I would much rather be at your child's recorder recital than to hear these things. I dislike it when Christians talk about doors, Not in general, obviously, that'd be weird. But I mean more the phrases that we have to uh, indicate what we think God's will might be. So uh, there's the sentence, uh, when God closes a door, he opens a window, which certainly can be true that that, uh, it means so when one plan uh, fails, God provides another avenue for us. That certainly does happen on occasion. There's other times to where we say, God closed that door. So uh, we have thought that this was the direction that we were going, but then uh, we faced some difficulty, which, which seems to be telling us that God didn't want us to do this. Uh, here, here's my question, though. So a door got shut. Did we try knocking on it? Did we sit and wait for the door to be open? Did we stop what we think God was calling us to because it just stopped being easy? I'm I'm mocking this a little bit, but I hope I'm not being cruel because it's a correction to me as well. Certainly, God does provide a different avenue than we could have ever imagined. Certainly, God does uh, graciously stop us from going down routes that wouldn't have been the best for us. But more often than not, it's in the times that we are faced with the difficulty, when it feels like a door is shut, that that is the time when God is testing that He is growing our faith, that as we are waiting and waiting and waiting on that door to be opened, as we are trying to discern where is it that God is taking us, it's not a sign that, oh, God didn't want me to do this. It's more often a sign that God is working something greater, that He is growing our faith, He is removing impurities, not messing around with the architecture trying to get us to go in certain directions. Because it's in these times of difficulty and trial of various kinds that God is producing something. And what is it that he is producing in these times of testing? It is producing steadfastness. Another word for this could be endurance or... uh, I forgot what the other one was. Uh, yeah, yeah, that'll work. Uh, not everyone heard it. So I will try to say it. So, uh, producing endurance, uh, steadfastness, um, and perseverance is a good one. The ability to continue in this. So the, the testing is producing something, and it's seen that the product that is being produced is greater than the trial that we're going through, that the end result is of more significance and value than the temporary pain and hardship and suffering. Like many people, Emily and I have been watching a lot of the Winter Olympics going on, and uh, as I'm seeing these these top athletes in the entire world do tremendous acts that show their, their giftedness and skill and uh, the, uh, the results of their hard work and efforts uh, from the inactivity of my couch. Uh, I, I had a thought pop in my head of when do you think the last time they had a burger was? because going through the olympics there there's so much that is sacrifice oftentimes it's it's committing yourself fully to a sport from a young age where there's no real room for interaction outside of that sport your relationships are formed there not really anywhere else your 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 commitment and your time is filled with the sport of practice of competitions it's sacrificing things, it's eating healthy so you're not having burgers, you're, you're eating so much that's healthy to the point where it doesn't really seem healthy anymore. And there's so much that is being given up in these times, and yet they would say that these sacrifices, these efforts, this hard work is, is all paling in comparison to that end result of getting to represent your country, to possibly be crowned best in the world, to go on the stage. We do things similar with our lives. We, we deny ourselves something now. Maybe it's, it's eating out or, or buying ourselves something uh, as we're trying to save up for a trip that we're really excited to. That we make sacrifices that we go without now as we're trying to, to save for, for some bigger expense down the road. That people go through withdrawals as they see that they were too reliant on this one thing that these difficulties and pains and hardships now pale in comparison to what is being produced. And so it's seen as valuable and worthwhile. That is what we see here with the Christian life. Trials will come of various kinds. They are not... Good. We, we never say that we love that we're going through these, but we go through them because we have a mindset of this. We count it as this, that something is being produced. Something greater is being worked out in them, that God is testing of faith to produce steadfastness. And yet steadfastness is not the end result. The point of all of this is not to endure trials so that we're better at enduring trials down the road. But that there is a greater result that is happening. We are allowing steadfastness to have its full effect, to, to produce its its ultimate goal, which is that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect means a a, a lot of different things. So we may think of baseball where uh, you get praise and celebration for having a perfect game. You didn't allow a single run. You didn't even allow a single hit. You were perfect. We have a test that we have to take either at school or, or through our job or to prove that we're able to drive a car. And after all of that time of of studying, of practice, to come out the other end and to not miss a single question, to make absolutely zero mistakes, to be perfect. And so what is it saying here that as we go through trials, we are being made perfect? Clearly it's not once we go through difficulty, we now don't make any mistakes because I'm still making lots of mistakes. But it's what we've been talking about. That these times of difficulty are a time when God is bringing us in closeness and likeness to him. He is making us more and more as he is. That as we are called Christians, we are actually living more and more up to that title, to that name. That these times of difficulty are actually times where God is most present, growing our faith, removing impurities, making us more and more like him until the day that we stand before him fully perfected. See, these various trials are are one more opportunity for us to rely solely on God who alone is able and worthy of being relied on. Each of these various trials is one more opportunity for us to realize that our selfishness comes out far more than we realize, and yet we never are self-reliant. Each of these various trials are are one more opportunity for, for God to make us more and more like Him until we stand before Him Perfected when He makes all things new. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna keep throwing out caveats to this though. It doesn't say anything about how we're to only react with joy. That Christians somehow avoid some of these hardships. That uh, that uh, things things are totally going fine, and so we just have to pretend all of that. It doesn't say anything about that. But it says everything about our God who is with us in the midst of the difficulties of life. All that life throws at us, he is with us, growing us to be in closeness and likeness to him. I want to leave us with one example of a life where we see this exact thing of of someone growing closer to God even in the midst of the most difficult of life. And that, that's the life of Horatio Spafford. So Horatio Spafford looked like he had a perfect life. He was a very successful lawyer. He was happily married to Anna, had four daughters, a son. Everything was going really well for him, even ministry-wise. He he was working alongside D.L. Moody, saw lots of people coming to faith in mid-1800 Chicago, even helped start a church in the region and, and was seeing God work through that there. And then just about everything that could go wrong in someone's life went wrong in Horatio Spafford's life. It started when his son died of scarlet fever. And then he, uh, the, the saying goes, uh, real estate's always a, a smart investment. So he took a vast majority of his wealth and, and he put it into property. And, and things were fine until the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 where he lost all of it. But despite being financially destitute and, and, and really struggling, he still wanted to help with the ministry that D.L. Moody was doing, and, and Moody was going over to Europe, so he and his family were going to go and travel and support however they could. He, he got delayed trying to, trying to deal with some of the financial stuff after the fire, so he sent his family ahead of him to meet them in Europe. Along the way, another vessel collided with a ship that was carrying his family. Anna survived. Anna survived. All four of his daughters died. When Anna eventually got to land, she was able to send him a telegraph and it just said two words, saved, alone. Consider that pure joy? You've got to be kidding me. That is too much for one to bear. Too much for God to ask and yet we see the truth of this passage, that in the midst of the worst that, God, uh, that life throws at us, that God is there working and growing, bringing us closer to him, never saying things are fine, never saying this is okay, but it's the mindset that God is in the midst of this working with us, not leaving us alone, growing us to be closer to him. Eventually, Spafford was able to get on a ship. He was going to join just his wife. And as he reached the spot on the journey where his four daughters died, he wrote a song with some words that might be familiar to us. He wrote these words right by where his daughters died. He said, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How do Christians respond to the travesties, to the pain, to the hardships of this world? Well, we don't say it is well with this world, because it's not. But we say it is well with my soul. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you do not leave us on our own. That there is so much hardship and hurt and pain in this world, and yet we know it's not purposeless. We know that this is a broken place that we constantly choose to go against you, that we pray for things to be restored and made new again, and we are so grateful that that is the future and the truth, and that gives us hope. And yet until that day comes, we see that even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of hurts, even in the midst of pain, that you are working, you're bringing us closer to you, you're making us more and more like you, until the day we stand before you made fully perfect. Help us to, to never pretend, to never force a smile, but help us even more to have the mindset that you call us to, that James commands us to, to count it all joy. Not count the trials themselves as joy, but seeing that your work your results, what you are producing outweighs even the most disastrous and awful things we will come across. Thank you for this book. Thank you for your words. Let us be shaped by them as we become not just Christians in title, but in who we are and what we do. It's to you and your alone we pray. Amen.